But think what children learned in that time. They learned their whole native language to speak it well. They learned enough of psychology to know how to please and also annoy their parents and other people. <laughs> they figured out how to make friends. They could make friends. They learned an enormous amount about the physical world around them. They, their curiosity and their play, which are unstoppable, led to enormous amounts of learning. You know, I used to be able to say that a good share of what a person will ever know in their life, they've learned before they ever started school. You know, if there isn't evidence for self-directed education, uh, you know, beyond that, I, I don't know what it would be. You know, everybody ought to be able to see it, whose eyes are open, who's watched a child develop uh, in that way. Now, now, some people believe, and I've even seen developmental psychology textbooks declare that, well, this is all fine and good for little kids, but once they reach five or six, that curiosity tends to stop and they're no longer playing in the same ways. And I say, well, isn't that a coincidence? It tends to stop and they're no longer playing about the same time they start school. What if they didn't start school? <laughs> Okay, let's start. Uh, here with me today is Peter Gray, and I'm super, super grateful that you're here with me. You're a researcher in the field of education, and you have been a great inspiration for myself, for my son, and I know for a lot of uh, other unschooling families as well. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I would like to start with your book. It's uh, all about uh, play and education. And as I saw my kid growing up, now he's 10, I saw that this is true because I'm a German teacher and I'm very German by heart. So when he started to be interested in learning, I was like, okay, this is how it's supposed to be, look like. Now we're going to learn like that. And of course, it didn't work at all. So I've been reading your book and I was like, okay, um, he's right. Kids need to enjoy the process of learning and they enjoy playing a lot. Maybe you can talk a bit about what led you to write that book and what you experienced in, in your research that led you to, okay, I need to write it down so everyone can have access to that. Yes, well, you know, as I explained at the beginning of the, the book, Free to Learn, that you're referring to, um, I was really led into it by my son. Um, I was, uh, I'm actually a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College, and I was then. And um, the, uh, and I was doing laboratory research, uh, very different from what that book is about. Uh, laboratory research on the brains of rats and mice and the binding of certain hormones there and happily doing that research. But meanwhile, I had this son who uh, was going to school. Um, you know, he seemed fine up until he started school. And then he started school, a typical suburban uh, elementary school, you know, a good reputation as reputations go about pub regular public schools. Uh, And he hated it. And he said he hated it. He hated it from the first day. He hated it all the way through. And somehow, this was quite a long time ago. Even homeschooling was very rare at that time um, and uh, was seemed to be something that was primarily fundamentalist religious people who were doing, which was not the case for our family. And um, so we just fought with him for, <laughs> for years. <laughs> you got to go to school. We'd go and the teachers would call us in and somehow they thought it was our fault. <laughs> we hated school and we had to clamp down on him. And um, and the rebellion got worse and worse. And it, it finally, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll save the drama for people reading the book, but it finally reached a point where it was very, very clear that the school didn't want him. <laughs> He didn't want to be there. We had to do something different. And 
we found uh, we tried we looked at various other schools and 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 he didn't like any of them and then we found um, the Sudbury Valley School, a school called the Sudbury Valley School, which at that time had already been in existence for about ten or twelve years or something like that, and um, and which I had actually heard of but I hadn't really very seriously considered. Uh, and uh, we visited that school, and my son said, "If if what I'm seeing is true." Uh, this is what a school should be. And so the Sudbury Valley, so he ended up going there. Now, Sudbury Valley is a school that um, at that time uh, and was uh, still kind of in a pioneering stage, although it had been around for a while. Uh, it had um, at that time about 50 students and eventually grew up to about 200. And it has since sunk down below that. But the... Uh, the uh, the essence of the school is that children um, are free, that children are free to do what they want as long as they're not breaking any of the school rules. And the school rules are all made uh, democratically in which every child has a vote in the rules. Um, there's no curriculum that's imposed upon children. There's no tests. There aren't even courses offered, but if a group of kids want a course for some reason, they can organize one and usually talk a staff member into leading it. Um, there, uh, the children are not segregated by age, so there are children there from age four on through what we think of as high school age, all the way up to 18 or 19 years old. And uh, they're free to mingle with one another, and there's all kinds of opportunities for learning, kind of almost anything you want to learn, but no requirement to do so. Uh, if you want to just sit there and do nothing, no, nobody's going to come over and tell you not, to, you know, they've had to do something. So kids are just really free in that setting. And um, so my son said, well, that's the way school should be. <laughs> and uh, so he went there and he was convinced right from the beginning, um, but I wasn't totally convinced. Um, the uh, I was happy that he was happy and I could see that, you know, the brightness was coming back into his face and he wasn't so angry as he was before and he was uh, he was now the kid that I used to know before he ever started school uh, but older and smarter in some ways <laughs> and uh, he uh, and so uh, but because but I but like most people right in our culture I worried um, well you know this is a really unusual thing to do it was more unusual then than now and, um, how, you know, good that he's happy, but how is this going to affect him later on in life? Um, just for example, suppose he decides he wants to go into some kind of a career that, does, that requires him to go to, on to college. Uh, can you get into college? Can you get into college if you don't do a standard education? If you got no grades, you've never taken any tests, you've never done what the colleges tell you you're supposed to do in order to apply for admission there. Um, and also I wondered, so you walk around the school and the things that are very visible are art and music, you know, because these are things that are kind of on display. You don't necessarily know what's going on in people's heads and what else they're doing. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe they all become artists and musicians. That's <laughs> all limited to that. And that's fine and good, but there's a lot of starving artists and musicians out there living in their parents' basements. And I'm not sure that I want that. <laughs> so the, uh, so it all led me to, ultimately, I began to ask about the graduates and I'd hear stories and this graduate and that graduate, and I figured, well, you know, these are just picks, you know, there's a few cases apparently that have doing well out there in the world. But um, being a scientist, I felt like I wanted some more systematic data than that. And so ultimately I did a survey of the graduates of the school along with um, a part, person who was a part-time staff member, David Chanoff was his name who uh, was very helpful in gathering up the, finding the names of the people who had, who had been at the school and who laughed at what we call graduation age, um, roughly sometime between 15 and 19 years old and didn't go back to some other, some other secondary school someplace else, but went on in life either to higher education or to some kind of a job or to some other kind of really ultimately adult-like activity. 
And uh, we pretty much found nearly all of the graduates and almost all of them responded to um, a fairly extensive questionnaire that we sent out to them. And we interviewed some of them by phone. And for those who are still living in the area, we interviewed them in person. And um, the results uh, really amazed me. Um, so here are kids, here are a group of young people, uh, about 80 of them in all, who uh, had not um, done what we think of as school. They had not done what almost everybody in our culture believes you have to do to become a successful adult in this culture in this time. And yet here they were. They were successful by any measure. They were successful adults. They were making a living. They were living moral uh, lives. They were contributing to the society. They, uh, those who want, and those, and most surprising to me, those who wanted to go on to higher education went on to higher education without the credentials that the colleges say you're supposed to have. Somehow they got themselves in and they did fine. <laughs> and in some cases, superbly well. Uh, they went on because they went on only if they really wanted to go on. They didn't feel like, you know, I mean, after all, they educated themselves up to the age of whatever they were. They didn't have to, they didn't feel like they had to go to college for education. <laughs> but if they went to college, they went there for some other reason. And oftentimes it was because they have a career ambition that more or less requires that you go to college. But sometimes it was kind of for education. It was like, you know, I've done all this, I've done all this, uh, I've done all this uh, self-directed education. Wouldn't it be kind of fun to go and uh, listen to real experts talk about <laughs> about things that I'm interested in? And I am interested in various kinds of things. And so there were some people who went to college for what the colleges think is absolutely the right reason to go to college. You're really interested in all these subjects that the college teaches, or at least in some of them. And uh, and you're there voluntarily, and you want to learn this stuff, and you and so some of them went for that reason. But the, the major point is is the is the book was a revel the the study was a revelation to me that this works, <laughs> and then the question became, well, how does it work? <laughs> you know, I mean, you look you go to the school, and you know it doesn't. Some people might assume, well. It, if it works, it's maybe they're just on their own. They're doing school-like stuff, but they're not. <laughs> they're doing exactly what you think what kids would be doing when they're free. You know, they're playing, they're exploring, they're roughhousing, they're hanging out, they're listening to music, they're doing all the things that kids normally do. And um, you know, it's not like they—it's not like you set them free and they sit down and study algebra. <laughs> so the. Uh, <laughs> So the uh, so then how did they become educated? And so the uh, that of course led to uh, um, a further study, which um, really was done primarily by one of my graduate students at that time. But the two of us together designed a study that involved a lot of observations at the school to try to understand well what's really happening when they're just quote just playing <laughs> or just hanging out and so on and so forth and. The more we looked, uh, the more it became clear how all of that promotes education, especially in an age-mixed environment where little kids are playing with bigger kids and they're learning from the bigger kids and the bigger kids are playing not only with bigger kids themselves, but also with little kids <laughs> and they're acquiring uh, skills and leadership abilities and the learning by explaining things to the younger kids. This is all occurring naturally, not because anybody's requiring them to do it, you could see on full display the human curiosity and how children uh, of all ages want to understand things and they explore and ask questions and seek out answers to questions that they have. And you could also see um, how the role of play, play is doing things, and you could see how children in play are practicing various kinds of skills. So that was really the, um, that's kind of a long answer to your question, but that was really what led me to um, get interested in this. And this was many years ago. And uh, since then, I've, I've done a, a lot of other research about uh, play, about how children learn in play, about, in some sense, about the history of education. 
and also about how children and teenagers are suffering today because we've deprived them even more than we did in the past of uh, opportunities for play and self-direction and independent activities. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Um, because these questions are I'm asked the most. Um, first of all, my kid will not be socializing because uh, he or she is not going to school. And I always say, yeah, but it's not really socializing. If you sit in the same age group for eight hours a day, that's not socializing. That is sitting with same age kids. So I really love that um, this curiosity um, in mixed age groups is just kind of play that is yeah, fostering all of them to learn. I love that. And the second thing is that I love is, um, yeah, will my kid will be ever able to go to college? And sometimes they say, does your kid even want to go to college? You don't know yet, first of all. Secondly, why not? <laughs> I mean, why not? You can, I mean, there are so many online Uh, opportunities to get any kind of degree or whatever to get you into college. And I need to say, um, I don't even quite remember how I got into into university because uh, my bachelor degree didn't have anything to do with my master's and nobody asked me anything. So they weren't even interested. So I guess there's always a loophole you can use for yourself. And secondly, I think college, university, sometimes it's not even that interesting to do. It is, uh, it's really depending. And I think a lot of kids that I saw that are now unschooling, they do have a quite different idea of how life works. And I like that a lot. It's not like my thinking of, okay, I need to go to school, university, blah, 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 to find a job. They are like, okay, I'm going to create whatever I'm going to create for my life. And I like this a lot. Yes, and the next question I'm always uh, being asked is, how do I start self-directed learning? And sometimes people text me like, yes, um, my kids are like six or seven, and now we have to go to school or start homeschooling. And I always tell them, you already did. You already started because you live with them. <laughs> so just keep on doing what you're doing and support them in every possible way. What would you say how to start self-directed learning and schooling, whatever you want to call it? Right. So you've made, I just made a note. You sort of really raised three different questions. And if you don't mind, let me go, let me go through them, all three of them. <laughs> so the first one about socializing, of course, I was in my introduction, I was talking about a situation where socializing is obviously no problem. I mean, the kids are with other kids all day long at a school for self-directed education and a learning center for self-directed education. So unschooling is a different thing. Homeschooling where the kids are home, people are always, whether you're homeschooled, no matter how you're homeschooling, people ask the question about socializing. How do they they have this picture that the child is just isolated at home and does never see anybody except their own parents. How do they learn to get along with other kids? How, they, how do they acquire social skills? How do they make friends? And, and frankly, that is a challenge sometimes. Um, you know, we did a study. So I, I described the study I did of graduates of Sudbury Valley School, but much more recently, along with uh, Gina Riley, a colleague, we did a study of, um, first of all, just of of unschooling families to get the parents' view of, of it, but then a study of grown unschoolers, which was as comparable to the uh, study of, of graduates of Sudbury Valley School. And of course, one of the questions we asked was about, well, how did you meet other kids? How did you socialize? How did you? And um, and frankly, there were some who said, you know, it was kind of difficult. It was, you know, like, um, You know, there weren't many people on my block. There weren't any other homeschoolers in this area. And it was a drawback. And, and, um, and they said, frankly, it, it didn't, that didn't mean to them it wasn't worth doing it, but it was a problem to some degree. But the majority of them did not talk about it as a problem. The majority of them felt like they had more opportunity for socializing than they otherwise would. They're involved in the community. They're making friends of people of all ages. They've got 
little kid friends. They've got adult friends. They, if they, when they were 10, they had teenage friends. <laughs> so some of this idea that you make that socializing isn't, as you may point it out, I mean, it's kind of a limited socializing if it's everybody in the same group. You know, imagine a workplace where they segregate the 50-year-olds from the 56-year-olds. You know, I mean, you know, I would, if I were in a workplace and segregated from the younger people, I would be hopeless technologically. I, I need those younger minds, right? I mean, and, um, and teenagers need younger minds because they need little kids who are more energetic and, and creative and so on. And they also need older minds who are maybe in some senses wiser because they've been around longer and so on and so forth. So we learn more from people who are different from us in some way than we do from people who are all the same. And socializing all is all the more fun. Play is more creative when it involves people of different ages. So uh, so I, I have to say for anybody, whether you're sending your child to school or not, being able to hook your kid up with a real peer group is difficult in our society today because we don't let kids out just to play as we once did. It used When I was a kid, you know, moms just said, get out of the house. That's all they had to say. And everybody else's mom was saying, get out of the house. And so the kids were all out of the house. So they found one another. We found one another and made friends and did all kinds of things, got into mischief, did, did all the things the kids have always done throughout history. And that's how we grew up. But now it's harder for kids to find one another in a way that they're not being directed and supervised and monitored by adults. So that is a challenge. There are ways of meeting that challenge. But I think, I think in some sense, that's, what, that's the biggest parenting challenge right now is how to find a real peer group, help your child find a real peer group. And by peer group, I don't necessarily mean all the same age. I mean, people who are other kids, people who are over us, the spectrum of childhood and teenage years. So that is a challenge, but it, but it's one that there are various ways to meet. I've written about some of the ways to meet it. The issue of college, of course, is something we've already talked about. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I found it in getting into college is, um, is that some of them, some of them go directly on to a four-year college. They've never, never done anything that looks like school and now they're suddenly going to four-year college and how did they get in and i i think the stories that i hear about how they got in have to do really with their ability to talk themselves in uh that one of the things you learn in self-directed education where you're in charge of your life is how to take charge of your life how to how to how to get what you want in life um you know, I'll tell you just one story. This is, you know, this is not necessarily a typical story, but it fairly, but it kind of dramatically illustrates a, a more typical point. So, one of the one of the people in our study of the of the former of the graduates of the Sudbury Valley School went directly from there to a rather prestigious college, Brandeis University. Uh, not an easy school to get into. And uh, so we asked her, how did you get into that school? You didn't have any grades. You didn't have any of the things that people, that they say you have to have. <laughs> and she said, well, what I did is I, um, is I submitted an essay along with my rest of my application in which I explained why Brandeis was the only school I was applying to. And this was the school for me. And I absolutely knew it was the school for me. And the reason it was the school for me is I'm interested in economics and my favorite economist in the whole world is chair of the economics department at Brandeis. <laughs> so, so this, so what, what are the admissions officers going to do? They get an application like that. This is unlike any application they get from a typical kid who probably had his parents or a counselor at school write their essay for them. You know, this is, this is, there seems like something genuine here. <laughs> this person seemed ready to back it up that she actually has read these books by this, by this, and she had. Uh, who who knows why a teenage girl gets interested in economics? But she had, right? So 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 what do they do? They can't just throw the throw it in the wastebasket. They have to. Say, so they said, well, let's invite her for an interview, and and they invited her for an interview, and she said, well, you know, of course, for. I also want to talk to the chair of the Department of Economics. So she talked to the chair of the Department of Economics and, and they talked about his work, right? So 
yeah, I'm absolutely sure that that department chair called over to the admissions department to say, you've got to admit this girl, she's brilliant. <laughs> Only because of the egotistical thing that since he, she had read his work and seemed to understand it, she must be brilliant. So the, uh, so that's, that's, I have to confess, that's not a typical story. But there are a lot of stories that are in that direction. The kids who are going on to college know what they want and they can express what they want. And the admissions officers see that there's something genuine here. This is not just somebody else who's just applying to college because they feel like they have to go to college. Their family says it's just expected like college is a continuation of high school and you've got to do it. This is somebody who's actually made a real decision to go to college. And those are kind of few and far between. And so you it would be silly to throw them in the wastebasket. <laughs> you know, so that's part of it. The other thing, to be honest, is that many of the kids uh, who are in self-directed education, whether it's at a democratic school or it's unschooling, um, take some community college courses. And they often do that even while they're teenagers, even while they're still home educating. They take some courses at a local community college and something that interests them. And community colleges generally, as long as you can pay the tuition, which isn't very high, as long as you can pay the fee, um, they'll pretty much take everybody. So there's no real admissions requirements to take some community college courses. So the community college course, they get a grade, you know, a little transcript from the community college. And then that is a foundation for applying to a four-year college if they want to do that later on. So that's that's a very common route for going on to higher education for people who haven't um, taken courses, don't have any kind of a transcript to show the college, don't have any evidence to show them that they can actually sit through the tedium of courses and take tests and pass them and so on. So that's that's the college issue. And then, so the question of how do I start, I love your answer because, you know, everybody's starting with home education and unschooling. I mean, I should say almost everybody is. I mean, there are, we, I mean, it's sad to say, but there are people today who believe that they're starting to formally teach their student, their child, student, student, child, the words are in some people's minds interchangeably. The, uh, they're trying to teach their child, uh, believe it or not, in utero, right? <laughs> you know, there, are, there are people who start speaking, uh, speaking clear English because they believe the child is already uh, listening, is picking up English. There are people who play classical music <laughs> to the fetus because, they, you know, we've, we've become a little bit absurd in this. I mean, that, that's not harmful to do that, I suppose. But uh, And then we believe we're supposed to start talking to our infants even, even, you know, like they're a few months old and they have no idea what we're saying and they can't talk back. We're supposed to be talking to them all the time. We're, we're supposed to be starting to, you know, we get all these even for babies, so-called educational games and all this stuff, and people start. But this is kind of new. People didn't used to do that. You just had your baby, and you loved your baby, and the baby played, and, and uh, uh, you know, you fed the baby and cared for the baby and tried to keep it from crying and did all these things that were part of. Uh, and the babies grew up, and they explored, and they learned, and, they, and that was self-directed education. I used to be able to say that you know, the biggest evidence that everybody should have the self-directed education works is look at children before they ever start school. Look at how much they learn. You know, look at how much a child, I, I used to be able to say this quite honestly because no, in the past, people didn't start in any way formally teaching children until they went at least to kindergarten. And, some, and in, when I was in school, there, at least the town I lived, there was no kindergarten. So it wasn't until first grade that there was any kind of formal education. You just were living your life, right? And But think what children learned in that time. They learned their whole native language to speak it well. They learned enough of psychology to know how to please and also annoy their parents and other people. <laughs> they figured out how to make friends. They could make friends. They learned an enormous amount about the physical world around them. They, their curiosity and their play, which were unstoppable, led to enormous amounts of learning. You know, I used to be able to say that a good share of what a person will ever know in their life, they've learned before they ever started school. <laughs> you know, If there isn't evidence for self-directed education, uh, 
you know, beyond that, I, I don't know what it would be. <laughs> you know, everybody ought to be able to see it whose eyes are open, who's watched the child develop uh, in that way. Now, now, some people believe, and I've even seen developmental psychology textbooks declare that, well, this is all fine and good for little kids, but once they reach five or six, that curiosity tends to stop <laughs> and uh, they're no longer playing in the same ways. And I say, well, isn't that a coincidence? It tends to stop and they're no longer playing about the same time they start school. What if they didn't start school, <laughs> right? So so um, at any rate, uh, that's the thing. I think that some people, some people who, 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 become self-directed educators really do. They, they see their kids, how much their kid is learning, how bright the kid is, how happy the kid is. And they also have some memory of their own experience in the school and they say, well, why spoil that? <laughs> you know, why not just continue with this? And maybe they think about it, well, I just won't send them to kindergarten. It's legal not to send them to kindergarten in most states. So I won't send them to kindergarten. But then by the time they're first grade, they say, well, you know, things are going so well. Why should I send them to first grade? I'll wait, uh, maybe high school, maybe middle school, or maybe later on. And then they just never do it. So that's uh, that's another that's another route. And then there are people who get into unschooling by way of homeschooling. So they they start off homeschooling, thinking they're going to do at home what is done in school. And, uh, but you know, that doesn't work very well. <laughs> so you start thinking you're going to sit your child down at the kitchen table <laughs> and, uh, and you're going to devote an hour to, uh, to mathematics and an hour to, to English literature and an hour to this, an hour to that, the way they do in school or 40 minutes or whatever. And then you'll have a recess break and then, wow, try to do that at home. <laughs> You know, you can't do it. You can't do it. You, it doesn't work. <laughs> and that's, and the, and so you, you begin to modify. You begin to realize, wait, why should I make the child read this book uh, when my child wants to read that book? And that book seems to be every bit as educational, as far as I can tell, as the book that the school says is the curriculum book. Uh, why Why should my child be learning... I don't know about dinosaurs. If my child isn't interested in dinosaurs, my child happens to be interested in butterflies. So let them be, be interested. So it gradually shifts towards more and more. It's the child's interests that are determining what the child is doing, and and then at some point, maybe the parent discovers the term unschooling and says, "Oh wait a minute, this is actually a thing. I'm not just." I'm not just a negligent homeschooler here. I'm doing a thing. I'm doing a thing that has been studied, that's been written about, that other people are doing it. And now I can be happy by the fact that I'm not just a neglectful parent. <laughs> I'm a parent who believes in unschooling. And um, so that's another way that people get into unschooling. True. I like it a lot because it happened uh, to me. I'm a German teacher. I really wanted my kid to learn the alphabet and I made like little cards and I made little, little really cute with colors and everything. And I was like, ah, he's gonna learn. And he hated it so much. Yeah. And I remember we were, uh, we were traveling that time and, um, I was, uh, I think I was looking out of the window, there was the ocean and everything. And I was wondering like, what am I doing wrong? Like seriously. And then I discovered, okay, you know what I'm doing wrong is just, I'm sitting here trying to teach him the alphabet when I could be out there swimming and having fun and everything like that. So right. I think, um, that was my first realization. Like, okay, I, I need to let go of these experience, uh, ex expectations I have, um, because they are not my expectations. It's society's expectations. And then I started to discover about de-schooling. And the more I de-school myself, the happier my kid is because I don't have these anxiety issues like, oh my God, you, you're not fluent in seven languages, just in two. How is that possible? <laughs> so I'm way more relaxed. And even if he's just uh, on on... I don't know, gaming one day, I don't really mind. I mean, I mind because I don't like these gaming things. And I think that is uh, quite harmful to be on a screen all the day and have it like in your face. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, uh, I was eating a lot of uh, creepy stuff from the floor when I was a kid because nobody was watching. So we have, uh, we all have these unhealthy issues. 
And I, what I see is when I'm, now I don't live in Germany anymore. And when I go back to Germany with my kid, my kid is always like super, um, I would say he's very sure about himself. So he doesn't have no issues. And if there's something strange, and Germany is very strange for him because he didn't spend a lot of time in Germany, he's always like asking back, like a cultural shock. And I see the other kids, like they're so insecure with every minor thing and in their in their country i mean they should be very secure in this in that surrounding but i see it quite differently like we are the strangers and my kid is, is so much more mature i would say and so much more um, yeah reflecting about his surrounding and everything so i think deschooling was the point that when i discovered that everything went upwards because i had a better feeling it wasn't like okay i'm not neglecting anything here i'm giving it space <laughs> i'm giving freedom to my kid how important do you think deschooling is and how could yeah. parents start deschooling yeah, that's a great question so um let me address that first by saying that um one of the studies that uh, Gina Rylian did and I did was a study of, um, if I remember right, 232 unschooling families. And it was a survey we did. It was mostly moms who answered the survey. And we asked them a lot of questions about how they got into unschooling, what unschooling is to them. And we also, among the questions we asked was, what's the biggest challenge to unschooling? So we thought maybe the biggest challenge would be that, um, you know, it means at least one parent, at least while the kid is young, has to be home. <laughs> you have to be around. It's a financial burden. It's uh, just having your kid around is could be a problem. <laughs> you know, you're lacking certain freedom, and especially if you've got a bunch of kids, you know. We thought that might be the biggest problem. But no, far and away, the biggest problem, the, there are two biggest problems. We're almost tied with one another, but they're very closely related. We're, number one, having to justify this to other people, <laughs> including my own parents, the child's grandparents, who think I'm ruining the child's life by doing this, <laughs> including even strangers who learn that I'm doing this, and they start to ask, look kind of funny about it, and why aren't you sending your child to school, and what do you mean, you don't believe in education? You know, <laughs> you know, you, and, uh, and so having to justify it, that you're, you know, it's very hard for any of us to violate a social norm. We're, very, we're, we're creatures of norms. We couldn't live in society if we weren't creatures of norms. We tend to want to do what other people do. And, it, and it's hard to do something that other people aren't doing. And so um, homeschooling in the United States is becoming almost common enough that it's easy enough to do that. And you can justify it much more easily than you could even 15 or 20 years ago. But uh, unschooling is still, that's out there. That's like, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's something kind of weird in people's minds. And, um, and so, you know, if you're doing something that's not normal, that sounds like it's abnormal right? <laughs> and you don't want to be abnormal. And it sounds like to many people, like you're out of your belief. Who are you? To You're ruining your child's life by doing this thing. So so that's, uh, that's anxiety provoking. You've got to overcome that. And so that, and then related to that, which is the second thing that people said was the biggest challenge and clearly related to the other, is overcoming their own self-criticism about what they're doing. Every, you know, almost everybody who did this went to school themselves. Their parents went to school. Probably their grandparents went to school. Um, everybody they know went to school. Uh, school is the normal thing to do. Well, who am I to do this, to, to decide to break this norm? And what risk am I taking with my child? And oh my God, you know, that kid down the block, you know, he's six years old, he's in first grade, and and he's reading. My child is eight now and not reading yet. <laughs> you know, that that's a stress for parents, and it's a little hard to um, deal with that. And so you begin to question yourself, and you may even begin to try to 
force your child to practice reading, even though you don't believe in it, <laughs> even though you may have read tons of data that say, just hold back. Eventually your child will learn to read. Some children learn to read much later than other children. Don't worry about it. But you worry about it. <laughs> At least many parents worry about it. You're great if you don't worry about it. But uh, still at this point, th this is and that's sort of what de-schooling is. And I think that, I think you have to, you know, as, as some people say, I've got to, some people say what I've got to do is I've got to sweep the schoolishness out of my brain, <laughs> you know, look at life differently and really focus on, wait, how much I learned, how much everybody learns in their own life and in their own way. And, and it's very, probably the most helpful thing is to be in regular communication with other people who are doing what you are doing. And I'm sure that that's part of the value of your podcast and is to be in communication with others. So you recognize you're not alone in this <laughs> and you recognize within this group, what you're doing is something normal and you're not weird <laughs> right? And, and you're getting social approval for what you're doing and you're and you're hearing stories about the success of it you're hearing stories about the trials of it it's not there's you know there's there's no panacea there's no complete solution to all the problems of life and non-schooling isn't a complete solution to all the problems of children growing up you know but uh but you, but you hear, but you're you're now talking in a different kind of reality than the reality of people whose struggle is getting their kid to go to school and doing their homework and doing all the homework stuff and dealing with the anxieties that kids have and the pressures that they have about school and the hatred that they have about school and so on and so forth. You're dealing with a different set of issues, which turns out to be a less difficult set of issues than those who are dealing with kids in school. True. That's pretty true. And I learned that the more people I meet that are unschooling, the easier it is for me to unschool because I see, okay, first of all, their kids are doing great. Secondly, right. I see, okay, I'm not the only one who's so weird doing it. And um, since I started that podcast, I learned so much about unschooling. Like, uh, I think it has been like six months now, not a lot, but I've been into unschooling the last 10 years of my life. I know this is also not a lot, but I learned more in the six months than in these 10 years, because I think this regular discussions, conversations about the topic that really helps. And um I can just recommend it for anyone or everyone who's listening and who is uh, thinking, okay, I'm the weird one. No, you're not. You're just not well connected. That's a difference because we are not weird. It's just a different outlook on life. And I think unschooling is, or self-directed learning is, for me at least, it changed my whole life. Not only my approach to schooling or education, it changed everything. And I love that. It changed the way we get up in the morning, how we structure our day, what kind of expectations I have for, for myself, for my family, whoever. And I like this a lot. And now I can say, okay, I am now so confident that I'm happy in my lifestyle. I don't struggle anymore. And it took me 10 years. And I just hope that everyone who is listening and who is into unschooling that, um, Maybe it doesn't take 10 years for you. Maybe you just learned from my mistakes and from all these awesome conversations. Um, because I think there is a shortcut in it is letting go of expectations a lot. And every day, another expectation, just let go. Yes. And actually, I wanted to ask you something. What is the greatest gift parents could give their kids to really thrive in life and to get going with a self-directed education? You know, there's there's a lot of ways to say it, but I think it kind of all boils down to the same thing. But you you might call it respect, or you might call it trust. Um, that um, I think that I think that the way to think about children is they're human beings. <laughs> Number one, they're human beings. <laughs> they're human beings who are not you, and they're not products of you. You didn't create them. You we call it. We call it uh, procreation. We call it uh, reproduction, but we don't reproduce ourselves when we have a baby. <laughs> you know, we, we're that baby is a whole new person. That baby is not, not us. This, this is a stranger who's entered our house, <laughs> and uh, 
and our job is to get to know this stranger and to and the stranger is new here and uh, maybe try to help the stranger out in finding his or her way but it's still his or her way it's not our way <laughs> you know it's uh and that's a that changes your attitude i mean this is an idea that goes way back you know there are people long ago who would say you know you don't own your children they you know they are they are just passing through your life and uh but it's hard for us to give up this idea that we own our children and that and that we produce them and that they are products and we we hear we hear propaganda all the time about how parents have such huge influences on their children and you've got to do everything right or you're going to somehow mess your children up not true as long as you're not abusive to your child you know children are going to grow up fine if they if that wasn't true the human race would not have survived you know i mean children are amazing uh if we just give them a little leeway and so recognizing that is is very very helpful and so basically it comes down to respect sometimes when people say how should i deal with this issue with my child and maybe the issue is well um i'm not sure if you're hearing me now because you're but yeah so maybe the issue is something like a common issue today which i hear about and i'm sure you hear about all the time and you've even mentioned it is well my child is on the is on the computer all the time and i'm not sure this is good for him and so people will say well ask me so what should i do about that as a parent and i say well suppose suppose it was your spouse that you were talking about and not your child <laughs> how would you do how would you deal with it would you say now i'm going to take it away from you <laughs> oh good luck with that right <laughs> <laughs> or your brain isn't developed enough to be able to handle this or you know you, you would you would talk with them about it as a as a you would say you know so uh, i see you're on the computer a lot and i'm wondering what you're getting out of it and, and do you recognize that kind of i miss i miss not having you around to talk to because you're on the computer all the time or you know whatever it is you think are the issue or i'm wondering if i'm wondering if you, if there are other things you would like to be doing um somehow a conversation and to recognize that children are capable of of conversation and that they're not stupid <laughs> and that if they're doing something harmful uh, they want to know if it's harmful and why it's harmful. You might be wrong in thinking it's harmful. So you have to listen to them, too. You know, there there are kids, we've had computer, just to take the continue with this example, because so many people talk about it, we've had computer games around long enough that there are a lot of adults out there who are grown unschoolers, who are grown graduates, who spent most of their time on computers as kids. They're, as far as I can tell, they're doing fine, you know, they're, they have good jobs. They talk about everything they learned about from computers, how it's allowed, it given, gave them the kinds of skills that they have. And, you know, they're not all computer programmers and they're certainly not all video game producers. Some of them run businesses and they say, I acquired all these business skills by through World of Warcraft or whatever the game was that they were playing, right? It, you know, we don't know what they're getting out of it. So we are we are kind of um, we're kind of being pigheaded if we assume that we know that they're not getting anything out of it and they're just wasting their time. So, wouldn't it be good to have a conversation uh, about it with them and to try to understand it from their point of view? And maybe if we're interested in their point of view, they'll be also interested in our point of view. <laughs> so, um, so that's the way. That's the way. You know, that's really the. I think that's in some sense ultimately the essence of uh, of the parents role in uh, self-directed education is that is to treat the child as a reasonable human being <laughs> and not as uh, an idiot <laughs> who needs to be always told what to do is going to always do the wrong thing who if they are doing the wrong thing and it very clearly is the wrong thing is not open to any reason or discussion about it true <laughs> I like this uh, that a lot because I've been struggling with that and because in my head it was like so harmful to be on that gaming device all the time and I was like okay please show me what you're doing there why is that so fascinating so and right. now I see okay he's playing Minecraft and he loves to 
like survival games and these kind of things. And I know where he's coming from because he loves survival and bushcraft things. But right now we can do it because we live in a very limited place and space. But we used to do it a lot. So it's actually my fault. I should create the lifestyle he is wishing for. So he doesn't have to reproduce it in any kind of digital world. But he's free to roam around and do fires and anything like that. So sometimes I think, okay, we complain as parents a lot about the behaviors of our kids sometimes. But sometimes we have to look inside. Okay, why is that so interesting to them? What That's is behind right. all lot, of that? A lot of the things that we worry about are are cultural myths. The actual research does not provide evidence that, certainly on video games, all the evidence on video games is that video games are growth promoting, that kids who play video games are uh, acquiring social skills if they're playing them socially. They're acquiring all kinds of cognitive skills, you know, quick thinking, easy, quick judgments. Um, there, there are studies, I'll give you an example of one study. There are many studies that show the benefits of video games. But one study was, a, uh, one of the biggest studies I know of, it was headed by Columbia University School of, uh, uh, School of Health. And, um, and it was an international study. It involved collaboration with researchers in other countries. And there were thousands of kids in it. And the kids were all between the age of six and 10, if I remember right. And basically what they did is they asked the parents, how many hours uh, a week are, is your child playing video games? And um, separately from that, through, inter interview, into through surveys with the teachers, they asked for each of these kids about the social skills of the child, the intellectual abilities of the child, the emotional control that the child has, all these kinds of things. And on every single measure, those kids who are playing more than five hours a week of video games scored higher than those who were playing less. That was the cutoff they used in the study. I don't know what happened with even more time, which, which most children would be spending more time now. But what the study showed, if you're not playing at least five hours a week of video games, you are behind <laughs> the rest of the population on every measure that we seem to care about. <laughs> and there are also, there's no question about what There are now dozens and dozens of studies showing that playing video games is probably the most effective way of building um, intelligence to the degree that intelligence is measured by IQ tests. The same kinds of skills that are measured by IQ tests are the very skills that are being uh, exercised in video in video games. So um, now I'm worried that some parents will now assign their children to do video games. You've got to do five hours of video games every day so you'll be <laughs> your IQ will increase. <laughs> of course they're only beneficial if you choose to do them. Just <laughs> like everything else. Nice. That's good to know. That's relieving. <laughs> awesome. Nice. Thank you so, so, so much. We're at the end of this episode. I learned tons and I'm very grateful for everything you shared with me and everyone who's listening to that episode. Thank you so, so, so much. Well, good luck with your continuing uh, being a parent and your, um, and your podcast and everything you do. So it's been a pleasure. Nice. Thank you. Let's have a look. Okay,